0: O-U-T-D-O-O-R, and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether, and Fully Loaded Chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. All right, on today's episode, we're going to talk about Nebraska. Uh, But before we do, just a quick note about the upcoming Spartan Forge launch. I'm sure some of you guys saw the Instagram post I did where I just showed some screenshots of some of the aerial photos, some examples of areas that uh, are similar to what I would hunt, and wanted to kind of just give you guys a quick update. September 15th is the targeted release date for that application, and a lot of people have been asking about when it's going to be available to download. That's the date we're shooting for, and really over the last several weeks, it has been a lot of testing, a lot of feedback loops, a lot of updates to the pre-release application so i think a lot of the features that are going to be implemented should be there by that release i suppose there's always some chance that uh, most of it will be in there and then it'll just be kind of continued you know updates and added features you know kind of as time goes on with that app but effectively what you're going to have is mapping capabilities you'll be able to uh, do waypoint management you'll be able to look at Know, public and private land boundaries, you'll be able to uh, map your routes, you'll have access to satellite imagery, uh, topography, a hybrid view, also a farm layer which is kind of like a uh, it's just more of like a summertime or like fall imagery compared to the rest of the normal satellite imagery which is targeted to be more winter imagery where it's available. So you can kind of flip through those two different settings of aerial photos and be able to kind of find the one that pops a little bit more for your area and what you're looking for. But then eventually, we're also gonna add in the ability to allow you to sort of download tiles that are custom to your area. So you might be able to say like, hey, my area has logging two years ago and it's not on any of the aerial photos. Well, you'd be able to go in and set a time and you know day of the year that you want aerial photo from or I guess not aerial, satellite photos from, and be able to outline that area and probably pay like an a la carte fee and have those custom images downloaded so you can view them on your app. Um, Also working on getting LiDAR information there and a bunch of other good uh, mapping sources that I'm really, you know, pushing. I'm a big mapping guy, obviously, so I'm I'm trying to push as much as possible to try and get the best mapping features that we can really use. And then on the weather side of things, you'll have all the historical weather data, uh, meaning like you can go and look at the windrows for like the month of November, in a certain state, a certain area, you'll be able to see the upcoming forecast, both from a weather perspective, as well as a artificial intelligence based uh, forecast, be able to see your core movement, full range predictions, et cetera. And, and kind of a pricing structure there's going to be a basic option, which will have most of your mapping stuff. It'll be kind of similar to what you get with other mapping-based apps. Uh, but then there's also going to be some additional tier that'll have basically the full gamut, map everything, including the artificial intelligence and everything else. So I don't know exactly what the pricing is going to be there. Obviously, we'll know pretty quickly here, seeing as the 15th is rolling around pretty shortly. But uh, if you guys have any questions specific to it, go ahead and shoot me a message. I'll do my best to, you know, I can send some uh, screenshots for what the imagery looks like. I can answer questions about how the app works, uh, all that good stuff. Uh, And also if you guys are going to order it, you can use the discount code DIY and that'll save you, I think it's 25 or, it's either 20 or 25%, I'll have to verify. But yeah, with that said, let's uh, jump into the podcast. All right, today on the podcast for the first time, I have my wife, Sam, and We just got back from a trip to Nebraska and this is the first time either one of us have hunted in Nebraska The last couple of years Either both of us or just myself have gone to North Dakota for their early season hunt Really the main difference between the North Dakota opener and the Nebraska opener is Number one you have the option to buy two tags I guess in Nebraska if you really wanted to uh, but also the terrain is a little bit different at least where we went and also, the opener is slightly earlier. So, we had a September 1st opener in Nebraska, whereas in North Dakota, it always kind of starts at noon that first Friday in September. So, for us, this Nebraska trip was extended a little bit longer than what we typically do. It'd normally be like a four or five day trip to North Dakota. Well, we did basically a full week for Nebraska, including the driving. So, we ended up coming home with some meat, as I'm sure you guys saw on the Instagram post. So, we're going to talk a little bit about the hunt in general and some of the things that we thought that were maybe the same as what we expected going in and maybe some other things that were slightly different maybe some lessons learned in case some of you guys are thinking about potentially doing a similar type of hunt uh, to this one hopefully our experiences will help you in that regard so I guess for you Sam when we got out there was it kind of similar to what your expectations were in terms of like the landscape and you know how much you could see or were you expecting something a little bit different
1: um yeah i would say it was uh, pretty similar to like what we were expecting we definitely knew that it was a um, more open terrain um, as far as hunting goes um, in comparison to north dakota um, or hunting around home like here in minnesota um, or wisconsin
0: Yeah. And it was, for those wondering, it's the Sandhills region of Nebraska. So, in you know, the Eastern part of the state and maybe the Southern part of the state, you get a little bit more of kind of like the river bottom systems and woodlots and ag fields and things like that. But really where we were at, there was not much at all for agriculture. And it was just a lot of rolling open sandhills with zero trees a lot of pasture ground where you'd have cows just kind of roaming throughout the public land and when you get into some of the lower lying ground you would find these little swampy areas sometimes they had trees sometimes they didn't and you could you know definitely find river bottom systems but a lot of the river bottoms were sort of tied up with private land uh, whereas the sand hills themselves were mostly public i think for me it was pretty much about what i expected just because i had looked at the maps and i'd seen what Shane's hunt looked like before and, you know, the hunting public's been out there, you know, a few times. And I guess from that perspective, I kind of knew what it was going to be like. One thing that was a surprise to me a little bit was just that I think the, the white-tailed deer population out there is very, very low uh, in terms of at least population density. And that's because it's kind of a double-edged sword, I guess, because one way to look at it is you have an extremely low white tail density but the deer that are there are very concentrated and the areas that you would expect them to be are pretty easy to look at a map and just kind of figure out right like you can say oh there's this little you know swampy depression pocket of trees whatever brush that's probably where white tails are going to be and usually that's the case Um, what makes it a little bit harder though and this is something that we learned while we were out there you know, we were talking to the Forest Service people to stop by and some locals that we had talked to that were in the campground. And just about all of them kind of said the, th- the same thing in terms of the whitetails aren't as heavily sought after out there, which you'd think would make it so that there's like a higher age structure. Uh, but that typically wasn't the case. A lot of times those places that are easy to find whitetails in like those lower swampy areas, you'd find a lot of does and a lot of small bucks. Uh, you know, one-and-a-half, two-and-a-half-year-old bucks, maybe. And, and we bumped into a lot of other hunters out there that also the, the same thing. Most of the people were looking for mule deer, but there were some that were just kind of, you know, opportunistic and would go after either one. And they would say that, yeah, does and small bucks, easy to find for the most part. Bigger bucks, not so much. And if you look at some of the, you know, stats for Nebraska – Nebraska is one of those states that by the numbers seems to have a larger number of like three-and-a-half-year-old deer Uh, But that certainly didn't seem to be the case where we're out in that land And after talking to those people, it seemed like a large part of that is just the fact that during the rifle seasons out there Those sandhills just get absolutely pummeled with hunters Um, You know campgrounds are overflowing people are parked everywhere along the sides of the roads Guys will take in, you know, ATVs. Some guys will take in horses, and there's just not a lot of places for those animals to hide. So, I think that, you know, kind of age structure definitely gets heavily influenced by the rifle hunting, and there weren't a ton of other bow hunters out there, really. I mean, what did we run into? You know, half a dozen groups of other bow hunters that were going after whitetails.
1: Yeah, that sounds about right. I feel like most, the majority of people that were out there bow hunting were actually after mule deer, Uh, but you said some were opportunistic where they said that they would, you know, shoot either species. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, definitely not as many uh, groups of of whitetail hunters that we were running into.
0: Yeah. And it it seemed like to, I would say, I don't know, 75% of the people that we bumped into said it was the first time out there
1: yeah yeah that sounds about right
0: so that kind of made me wonder you know is it is it always kind of like that where you just get like this fresh influx of people who want to try it and then they're like eh, maybe it's not for me and they don't go back next year or is it just you know kind of a an effect that you see from more and more content on youtube and podcasts etc around those types of hunts i, I imagine that probably has a, a part to play
1: yeah I'm when we were talking to the US Forest Service, they did mention that it is one of, as far as like if, you, if you're going out on a, you know, over-the-counter tag to try to hunt mule deer, they did mention that it is pretty much like the first um, popular destination point for people trying to figure out mule deer hunting. Yeah, or do that on their own like
0: people coming from the south or people come from out east and right. they're looking like oh it's you know x number of hours to drive where's the first place that has a law line that we can hunt mule deer
1: right and i would imagine that for some of those people they just are trying to get their feet wet try it out um maybe see how it goes before they you know put more money or time into um a different hunt you know i'm not sure but
0: yeah it definitely, and I kind of painted almost, you know, some of a bleaker picture there, but I think certainly we saw evidence talking to people that there are some really big whitetails out there. Not so much on the mule deer side. I don't think I really heard anybody saying there was big mule deer out there. I just don't think they can get the age because of how hard they're hunted. But there is a couple of people we talked to that mentioned seeing or finding sheds of like really big deer, white tails. Uh, but the forest people forest service people have mentioned this especially is that those older bucks uh, even on the whitetail side they don't do what the other deer do which is something that you hear you know experienced hunters talk about quite a bit you know it's like almost like a different species of animal well if you have these little isolated pockets of whitetail habitat and that's what you're trying to hunt and that big five and a half year old 160 inch buck is out doing his own thing and bedding in some little you know ditch in a coulee out in the sand hills well now finding that type of deer just became a lot harder he's trying to find a needle in a haystack i mean those that land is enormous and uh, i mean apart from glassing weeks and weeks and weeks to try and find one of those older deer i don't know that there's like a better way to do that like i wouldn't go out to a place like that and plan on shooting x size of deer i would say like Go out there and look for the experience hunting that type of habitat, and if you happen to, you know, bump into one or see one that's big, then like awesome. That's definitely not an easy thing to do, from what it se- what it seemed like. And I guess to kind of expand on that too, Nebraska is a big state, and where we went is not representative of the whole state. And I'm absolutely certain that there are other areas that have higher whitetail densities that may or may not have more hunting pressure, but probably, you know, places that would be quote unquote better to go if you wanted to see more deer or potentially have a chance at a bigger deer, would you say, that? seem probably accurate based on some of the stuff that we drove through on the way back?
1: Yeah, it. I mean, I, I you know, I don't, It's my first time out there, so I, I didn't really know. It's hard to know what to expect, um, but it did seem like from talking to like some of the locals there, like you're, if you, Your chances of shooting a a bigger whitetail were almost better during, like, the the rut um, or rifle season. Um, Yeah. From what, I mean, there was multiple people that mentioned, um, like, seeing bigger deer or bigger deer being shot during that time of the year. I don't know if that's because of, I don't know if that's because of uh, pressure or them moving more just because of the rut or or what um well
0: one one guy i mean i guess yeah i guess it was just one guy mentioned like seeing a big deer near campground and you hear about that type of stuff i feel like quite a bit where he's you get all these people that are congregating in a certain area all these hunters and they're all driving out to whatever place to go hunt and they're ignoring whatever little pockets of cover are like right next to where they're staying and so i wasn't really surprised to hear something like that we did actually glass areas around the campsite a couple of mornings just to see if we could, you know, see something huh. like that. But, um, I didn't see any deer when we did that. doesn't mean they're not out there, but it's uh, a lot of land.
1: No, I was just thinking about one of the locals saying that the hunter at the, at the campground that we were staying at walked out like 200 yards out from their, their tent and shot a big, <laughs> a, a large white tail, right? Like right out from camp in the field, which I mean, obviously the chances of that happening. Yeah year probably pretty low but
0: well when i asked them what the season dates then were for rifle mean it's like pretty much right during the rut or like the tail end of the rut like a lot of seasons where you start to get some of those bigger bucks that are looking for does anyway and if especially the whitetails out there are covering maybe a larger distance than a typical midwestern whitetail would just because it's so far between those pockets of cover then it's not surprising that around the beginning of that rifle season you might happen to just see a bigger buck kind of wandering around but that doesn't necessarily give you a good idea of like where he's going to be in September. Right. And I guess on that point too, I mean, water was pretty easy to find. You either find a river bottom system or you find these little potholes. And that was another thing too, is that those little potholes, you can, people can frog gig them. People can duck hunt them. There was an early teal season. Uh, people fish in them. Surprisingly, even those little potholes have like bass and pike and stuff. And so when we were looking at the maps, and saying, like, oh, look at this nice little, like, secluded wetland area next to the road. Like, you didn't necessarily realize that that was gonna get a lot of pressure, not from deer hunters, but just, like, other people doing recreational things. So that was definitely a learning experience there. Uh, But water, you always talk about early season, it was pretty easy to find. It was just isolated. But the food, on the other hand, I mean, food is the other big thing we talk about early season, and... I didn't feel like it was very easy to pinpoint what the deer were eating in terms of isolation and isolated food sources a lot of the deer that we saw were just kind of feeding on grass and weeds out in the sand hills or feeding on browse within those little isolated pockets of brush and timber that they'd be bedding in
1: yeah i'd agree with that mostly seems like it was browse now i mean nebraska from like east to west the terrain can really vary quite a bit and then also you know public land versus private so I'd imagine like if you were hunting a, a private piece or, or a piece where there was like uh you know crops like beans that it'd, it'd be totally different where it'd be a lot easier to to pinpoint their their uh like bedding to, to feeding pattern right I don't know for us it did seem like I agree with you that it mostly seemed like it was uh browse um
0: yeah, and, and I felt like that made it harder to pinpoint and set up on deer, like specific deer. I think, you know, just kind of listening to what Shane was doing, he would hunt a similar area multiple days and he would have deer, different deer that would come through at like different areas and it wouldn't be like a deer that's doing the exact same thing day after day. And like right. the deer that we saw, I think that bigger buck that we ended up glassing, that we saw what, three times? and each time we saw him he was in a little different spot like several hundred yards away not something you could say like oh he's doing this let's go move in and kill him what you're trying right. to do and it didn't really work and out
1: that's one thing that i don't know like i don't know if he was changing his bed if it was due to like the wind but you know that was making him change or if it was more if he felt pressured at all that that's not yeah. yeah
0: it's possible because yeah. when we saw where we saw him the first night was where we ended up hunting the next two days.
1: I mean we did have a different wind like the first the yeah. first day that we saw him versus the second time. Um, and he was definitely bedded at a different spot um, each of those times. I'd, I would definitely say one thing that um, like I learned out there that was really clear is like glassing the importance of spending time yeah, behind a uh, glass. Like, even if that means like, I mean, you know, like, I guess <laughs> for, for us, like we both kind of had, I'd say a little bit different goals to going out. Like for me, this is like my second year hunting. So I, I, you know, I'm at the point right now where like experience, um, that like just that chance, getting a chance at a shot and the experience is more important to me than size yeah um of like a a you know or even gender like getting you know a buck, so like I going out there knew that i I wanted to shoot a buck, but I was not picky at all about how big that buck was gonna be, like if I saw uh a fork or I would shoot it, but then even you know in the back of my mind knew that i was i was not you know picky about shooting a doe either if mm-hmm. I got that opportunity, whereas I don't know about you i you know do you feel like it's pretty accurate that you your goal was more so to to shoot a buck that you felt
0: um yeah I mean my my goal was kind of twofold I wanted you to be able to get an opportunity number one and I guess number two for myself I was hoping to be able to try and find like I don't know let's say like a three-year-old class deer um and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between a two and a three but like a respectable you know buck was kind of what I was hoping to try and find and I would say that that one that we ended up glassing probably fit that bell like I would have I would have shot him had given the opportunity but if it came down to like the last day and had like a fork walk by like I probably wasn't going to shoot it just to come home with meat because I'd rather have you had that opportunity to to shoot like the the quote-unquote like any deer or the meat deer right. um
1: but I was just at like bringing this up because I feel like your like whatever your goals are for the hunt also plays a factor into your plan. Um, for instance, if if our goal for that trip was just to shoot a mature buck, I think that the uh the way that we go about the scouting might be a little different. Um I almost feel like I would have and, and I think we talked about this too at one point during the hunt, that it it almost be more beneficial to spend those initial days just behind glass Mm -hmm. um not only like finding that deer that that like that that buck that you are interested in you know potentially harvesting but also maybe seeing like what he's doing um if, if there's a pattern um
0: yeah yeah i would i would almost say like if that was our primary goal i would probably plan like 10 days with like five of those days being prior to the season and then like the second half being during the season. Yeah. And the only reason I wouldn't say like seven before and three during is just that if you do happen to find a buck and you pattern and whatever, once that season opens, you might find like some out-of-staters like us just come like, you know, drive into the spot based on what they saw in e-scouting and totally blow up your plan. And then you're back to kind of, you know, square one, figuring that out. and. If you only have like three days at that point, then your, your plans are kind of shot. Um, so being able to adjust to other hunting pressure is probably important. Um, but I would like to have, you know, a lot of days prior to the season, just to have kind of the unpressured deer to be able to glass. I mean, that's, that's 10 glassing sessions that you could pick a different spot every single time mm-hmm. to try and find a buck, uh, that's, that you would want to go after if that was your goal, because when I mean, we tried glassing a fair number of other spots, and most of the spots we glass, we didn't even see deer. Uh, some of them, there, you know, we'd, we'd get there and we'd start glassing, and then we'd have, like, bird hunters walk through the cover with their dogs, like going after grouse or prairie chickens or something. Right. Uh, there'd be other areas you get into, and it's just cows everywhere. Uh, and it seemed like the cows and the deer do not mix.
1: No, yeah.
0: Wherever, sure. wherever you'd find cows, you wouldn't typically find deer. And if you had pasture areas, even if they had, like, cow pies and stuff, but there was no cows physically there, the deer would be just fine. And the other thing that we found out there is, you know, I don't know which which kind of drives which, but it seems like some of those little swampy depressions are surrounded by fence. And those little barbed wire fences keep the cows out and that allows the cover on the inside to kind of grow up. And then that, those become a lot more conducive to, to deer bedding habitat and browse and whatever else. So that certainly helps from, I think, Creating deer habitat. Um, and we were talking to the Forest Service people. They said there's kind of a negative to that too. Is that having those little areas closed off from the grazing activity by like the cows allows non-native species like western, you know, red cedars and stuff like that to grow up, which is not good for the landscape either. But it did create that whitetail habitat. So I don't. I don't know. I guess. If we're trying to target a bigger one, I don't know if it would still be good to target those same type of areas. Or if we would, you know, yeah. you just go out there in a glass, Almost like totally treeless, like more rugged, like, you know, ditches and cool stuff that you would think more likely to have mule deer and see if there's whitetails there.
1: Right. That's what I gathered. It's like, I mean, I think that those pockets where the other deer are like, you know, does and, and some smaller bucks. I mean like the one of the areas like the area that we did find that buck that was I don't know how old he was two and a half three and a half but I mean that was an area that was being used by does and other small bucks so I think it's possible to find a larger buck in an area like that but also it just that you know it it's what you're saying like it's very likely that they're not um going to be using that same area and and then in that case I'm I you know, I'm honestly not sure <laughs> how you'd find them if they're if they're betting by themselves. It's almost like you you might need to find
0: Yeah, I mean they might be close. They might only be like, you know, a few hundred yards off or, you know, not necessarily like three miles from the nearest whitetail, like out in the middle of nowhere. I also think that some of those areas where you do get kinda closer to the river bottoms and you just got like cedars everywhere. It seems like that type of stuff when we when we walked into that type of area just to kind of scout it it seemed like the deer densities were a little bit higher in those areas but they were like almost impossible to glass like areas just thick with cedars like you can't really see anything unless you're on the ground so that might be another like potential opportunity too is just forget glassing and just use your boots on the ground and and use some you know similar to like hill country type tactics in some of those river bottom drainage areas
1: yeah, I guess, you know, I would definitely say if, like for me, with, with my my goal of just, um, you know, shooting a deer and not necessarily being picky um, about, a, you know, doe versus buck or size of antlers or whatever, um, I feel like there was a lot of opportunity. Like we were seeing, you know, we saw plenty of deer mm-hmm. and there was, I felt like a lot of um opportunity to get on those deer and and be successful obviously you know i was able to shoot a doe and um so there's definitely deer out there and you know there there are opportunities for sure yeah
0: i think well put it this way would you after the experience that we had would you you know choose to go back out there and do that hunt again
1: if, I mean, one thing I, I liked about it was that it was it was different than anything that I've hunted around here. The, the terrain is very different out there. So it was a different experience, which that in and of itself was fun. Um, I mean, at one point, I think I said to Garrett that it, while we were glassing, that if we didn't come out of that hunt with any meat, if we didn't shoot anything, that just the experience alone, um, hunting something different, learning, uh, you know, learning from it, glassing, being out there was, would have been enough for me. Um, But yeah, I would say, I guess, I would say that I would go back. Um, I just would maybe, you know, I guess the thing that's, that stands out to me is just, what are your goals? So like, if we did go back and the goal was to shoot a buck, I think I would go about it a little bit differently than we did this on, Yeah, like, uh, one thing is maybe just have one person. I think we, and we talked about this as well, just have like, rather than trying to fill like two tags and having like two goals, maybe just one person, um, having a tag and then kind of, you know, if the goal is to find a buck, um, using strategies to try to achieve that
0: yeah because if we were if we were just set up on a hillside glassing that was uh, like a night that we were not going to have an opportunity to shoot any deer right and conversely if we did decide to dive in and do a setup then you really can't see much else so whatever you see within your little 60 yard window is you know you don't really know what else happened that day you don't know if deer walked out 200 yards uphill um, or, or whatever. So, yeah, I definitely agree that probably next time we do a trip like that, we're probably just going to, you know, it'll either be you get a tag and we hunt for you or, you know, vice versa. I'll get a tag and we'll just hunt for me. Um, and that makes it easier, too, with the filming because then, like, you think back to even, like, when we shot my deer last uh, last year in Wisconsin. It was, it was kind of weird because, like, we both had our bows and, like, you almost got a shadow on the morning i was holding the camera and then like we were both kind of sitting there and it's like well if, you know who who should shoot if a deer comes in kind of talked about it ahead yeah. of time and it, i it, mean it, like either one of us are prepared to pick up the camera but I, it'd be a lot easier if we could just like you know focus
1: yeah I, th- I definitely think that that's one thing that we're learning you know hunting together is um just like a good you know what <laughs> what works well with two people and and it, it is seeming like there may be certain instances where it makes sense to both bring a bow, but in general it it's going to be easier if, if one person brings a bow and the other one's like strictly behind the camera. Um, yeah just just it makes it so that number one you're you're more what because it just makes it so that you have a, a better plan in place and then you're following steps to like reach that goal or that plan you know um
0: yeah like if we if we went and did that trip again like i would probably especially in a a state like nebraska where you can buy a tag over the counter i guess you do need to have access to a printer to be able to print out your tag in that state but like as compared to a state where you'd have to draw right like i would probably not buy a tag and like we just try and fill yours and if you kill your deer like the second day it's like okay i'll go buy a tag and you know we'll try and fill that other tag but if it's like day five and, and you would like sh- fill your tag and it's like okay well do i want to buy a tag with like two days left or do we want to just like save the pto for a different hunt like that's you know probably in hindsight how i would have maybe done that nebraska one
1: mm-hmm.
0: i think in terms of like what i go back from a. Uh, I think from the perspective of like number of deer proximity to home like size of like potential size of deer i don't really know that nebraska gave me anything that i don't have from other states that are closer like wisconsin or north dakota um iowa you know like i think that that piece of it is easier served uh, hunting closer to home plus i can scout that stuff more easily so i think nebraska for me is like one of those things where if i want that same experience if i want the the challenge of going out in the sand hills uh, or out in some of that other habitat be able to see new parts of the country see new things try new things if i wanted that experience again i would i would definitely go back out there um but if it if i wasn't necessarily looking for that then i would probably still be just as happy sticking closer to home and just scouting the stuff that uh is local to us a little bit heavier
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, it's definitely one of those things where it's like, um, we you know, we've hunted n- North Dakota last year together, and I really enjoyed that time up there. And so it's, in some ways I was kind of like missing that, you know. Yeah. But, um,
0: Plus Nebraska was hot.
1: <laughs> yeah, Nebraska is very, very hot. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I just got eaten up and and pretty much sweated the entire time. But uh, like I said, again, though, it was still an enjoyable experience and like being in a new, in a new place and um, different terrain, was still fun regardless.
0: Yeah, so let's let's switch gears a little bit. The first time that we were set up on the ground, we saw those two does that came in like super close range, uh, but we weren't quite in a position where we could get a shot. And then we went up and sat in that tree and we had that doe come walking in and that doe had a nice long time to slowly walk in and make it seem like she was going to come in range. Like what was your, I guess, anticipation or excitement level? Like as that deer was slowly walking in, was it hard to kind of like stay focused and like keep calm as that you could see that deer slowly walking in?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what Garrett's referring to is like the second, hunt that I had um before I actually shot the deer that I did so um yeah I would say (laughs) I was I started getting really like (laughs) nervous excited and nervous and uh was I basically like started shaking and like um I mean I felt like yeah like she was kind of like just slowly like meandering her way in like eating as she was coming in, um and then she uh she just never like she she came in and there was the entire time there was like trees and uh branches in the way. So like she she just never quite came in like close enough to be in my shooting lane but yeah, I was uh, definitely felt pretty like worked up with her, like just you know excited
0: like if it would have given if you a she, shot opportunity If she would
1: have actually come in i think i don't know if i i mean i would have probably been able i know i would have been able to draw back but i would have been shaking. Right. <laughs> so i don't know how good the shot would have been you know
0: and we're in such a wonky tree too that you had to like put your foot up on the branch in front of you to like stabilize for a shot like well, certain angles
1: and i, I thought i was going to be able to do that come to find that there was no way that would have worked because as soon as i put my foot up there it's just shaking so much I was like this is not gonna work (laughs) but yeah it was kind of an awkward awkward tree and it was definitely uh leaning a bit um in the saddle so
0: so then how did that compare to when you actually did get your opportunity to shoot your doe where that one just like she was there and you had like seconds to get ready
1: that like I don't know, I just, for some reason, maybe because it was so fast and I had to like actually think through the whole process, like it, I I don't remember ever like feeling really anxious or nervous and actually felt like really calm the entire time, you know, like that first year that, that the first, you know, the first year that came in that, on the previous hunt that I, I wasn't able to get a shot at, like my heart was just pounding (laughs) <laughs> and then this the deer that i actually the the deer that i did get a shot on she um i don't know it just happened fast you know i saw her and she's
0: it's like oh, you had time to, in and all you had time to think about was like okay grab the boat grab the release so just take it on the release, right. like right come just back to full draw the, like, look at the prayer, level yeah
1: and then like but once i did like you know she was coming uh in front of us and she's about 20 yards and walking and Um, There was a tree right there that she... I was hoping my my best shooting lane was to shoot her before she got to the tree. Yeah. And so in my, like, what I'd planned, like, picturing how it was, you know, potentially could maybe work out, like, if a deer came that way, the way that she did come, was that I would um, get my shot off before she got to that tree. Well, that didn't happen. (laughs) 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 By the time I was like drawn back and you know felt set she is already behind the tree so then once she got past the tree there was a a window a lane that i had to shoot beyond the tree as well so um and i knew i had to stop her and i think that's what i felt like the most anxious about was like my you know the doe that i shot last year in north dakota was she's just standing she's just standing there and it was so windy and like she couldn't hear any you know there's no way she could hear us and It was like she's just standing there with a perfect like you know shot opportunity and this time i i had to stop the deer and i didn't know how that would work or you know like she would stop right away and so i was kind of like hmm so (laughs) i you know stopped her and it just she stopped us right away and stood there and that was the other thing i didn't i was kind of anxious about was like well and i'm sure it's different for every situation but it's like once once you do stop them like how long will they just stand there like will they yeah like look and startle and run away right away and like how much time do i have to shoot but i just the whole thing felt really like really i don't know i felt very like calm calm and and comfortable and like pretty much like settled my pin right on her did not feel like nervous at all and It's kind of like, I just felt like I was going through my whole like process of what I would do at the range, you know, with taking a shot. Um, So the pin on her and then let the arrow go.
0: Yeah. And she, I mean, it wasn't even that windy. Like I always kind of chalk the deer you shot up in North Dakota, not reacting to the shot just due to the fact that you were super close to it and it was like ultra windy. So she probably didn't really hear much of a noise that was like startling. But for this deer, it was, you know, maybe similar in the fact that it's early season we haven't really been pressured, but there was not really much wind. So I'm sure she heard the bow go off, but she still didn't react at all. I mean, like the, the deer, from the time your bow went off to the time the arrow hit, the deer didn't even flinch.
1: Right. And that, I mean, I think that's something that as I continue to hunt and I'll find out, you know, like, I don't know if it's part of it is that my, my, my bow, I mean, it is a, it is quiet, so part of it could just be that, it, you know. And your
0: arrows are quiet, too.
1: Right. Part of it could just be that, you know, it is quiet, and so, you know, the deer maybe won't react to it like like I've seen in, you know, you see in a lot of those shows you watch. Um,
0: yeah, it's, not, it's, it's curious. I, I'd be interested to know know how much of it was that just like how quiet your bow is and how much of it was like them just not really you know early September probably haven't seen a hunter like that entire season probably don't see that many bow hunters in general probably more more so rifle hunters right and and maybe that's just not like a not something that was they're they're predisposed to really react to I'm not really sure I mean I feel like to a certain extent every deer that like jumps the string probably hasn't had an arrow like shot at it like previously. So I, I would imagine that some part of that noise going off is just like ingrained in their mind. Like they hear a loud noise and they just like duck and start running. Mm-hmm. So that, that part of it kind of makes me think that, you know, maybe it, your quiet bow did have something to do with it, but it's tough to say for sure. And your, uh, Part of that is, is due to the fact that, I mean, your arrows are not super heavy, but they're pretty heavy for your poundage. I mean, they're like, they're like about 10 grains per pound, because you're 43, 44 pound draw weight, like 430 grains arrow arrow weight. And that's like a grains per pound that's similar to like what I would say is maybe typical for a lot of traditional bows, which are obviously pretty quiet too. And you're you know, lobbing those arrows somewhat slow, but that equates to a pretty quiet overall rig and it doesn't make like a, you know, loud hiss or a loud like crack. It's more just like kind of a thump mm-hmm. when right. the bow goes off and there's not a whole lot of mm-hmm. arrow noise because we, I mean, last year we had the fobs in your arrows with those longer lighted knocks and this, this year we put on heat vanes, which, I mean, they're one of the quieter vanes out there. So I think that probably played into it too. Your broadheads are non-vented, so they're nice and solid I and mean, there's Really not a lot of things in your arrows to make noise once they leave the bow. they're pretty quiet
1: mm-hmm.
0: and we've talked about that too about how like you don't have a good speed out of your setup at all, but you make up for that with a really quiet setup, so you have a little bit of like added forgiveness on that side of it that say I wouldn't get with my rig. Mm-hmm. Like my rig's much flatter shooting, but it's also a lot louder, so they're more likely to jump the string, especially in the, like that you know mm-hmm. thirty thirty five yard range all right. Penetration-wise, everything seemed to be, you know, pretty similar to your North Dakota deer. Mm-hmm. Arrow went right through, stuck, what, six, seven inches into the dirt? Yep. And the deer took off, 100, 120 yards, crash. Right. Now, we, we had been talking about this, too, about potentially changing your arrow setup a little bit. Based on what you've seen now with this deer, too, is that kind of still the direction you're leaning?
1: Uh, I mean I'd like to try like try some different things out. For this for the rest of this season, no. I I'd wanna stick to my current setup. But for sure for like next season, I'd maybe wanna try out some different uh different setups.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: I'm pretty happy honestly with I mean, one thing for me that I have to keep in mind is like my shot placement is really important for me because of the fact that I'm shooting, I just don't have a, a fast arrow and shooting, uh, I don't have a very long draw length. Uh, I, I'm not pulling a lot of pounds, my you know, my pounds that I'm pulling back. So, I mean, just in general, that's always gonna be something that's, you know, I have to think about that's important. Um, no matter what, Setup I have, honestly.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you pretty much hit the nail on the head there. I think. So, our next hunt is this weekend. So by the time this podcast launches, it'll probably been like, you know, a day or two after that, we'll leave. We'll head up to North Dakota for a short trip, and kind of like what we alluded to earlier. Instead of us both trying to bring our bows and everything, I'll just film Sam. Hopefully we'll get on a buck, um, for what I hear the, it's a good acorn year up there, so I should be able to hopefully find some sign even though it's going to be a short trip. I might also hang some trail cameras, because I'll, I'll probably plan on going back to North Dakota once or twice throughout the course of the fall where it makes sense. And never really put cameras out there before, so I think it'll be interesting, number one, to kind of just see what's, you know, what's out there. Uh, but also potentially get some information that's actionable by the time I do go back. So it would be kind of interesting to see what those pictures look like. We should be able to do stuff like that during the day and then hunt in the evening and scout. And probably even could hunt mornings out there too. So that should be fun. It's kind of nice in, in that uh, the way that this year sets up in the Wisconsin and Minnesota openers, we basically get two weekends of hunting in before either of those states start. It's almost like you could have the opportunity to fill two tags mm-hmm. in two different states before your home state open That's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. All right, well, any closing thoughts? No. No, nope, not bad though. So. Yeah, I me mean, neither. I think we covered just about everything for, uh, for that trip. I mean, if, if anybody has any questions about you know, this trip in particular, the state, the, you know, region, the style of hunting, etc. um, or just any other questions related to the, kind of the logistics of out of state. I did a podcast on, on those logistics not too long ago, but yeah, any questions for sure, you know, go ahead to reach out to us and do our best to try and answer those. So that'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.